careful. This is the measure of your skill set. The calm before. And there it is. Instinct pushes me forward. I object. I'm on my feet. Eyes zooming in on me. Objection sustained. Yes. My client, big guy, looks stunned. Doesn't quite know I've won a point, but he feels the shift. Likes it. My client hates the witness. But for me, the witness is just the witness. Welcome to Not In Print, a podcast from Currency Press, the performing arts publisher, where we speak to playwrights and theatre makers about their work, their ideas and their inspiration. I'm Caitlin Doyle-Markwick and in this episode I spoke to playwright Susie Miller, whose plays have seen about 40 productions around the world and have won several major awards. Here we discuss Susie's play Prima Facie, which won the 2018 Griffin Award and two Augie Awards in 2020. Prima Facie is a one-woman play told from the perspective of a successful criminal lawyer who, one day, finds herself on the other side of the witness stand. You started out as a human rights lawyer, and as I understand it, you've worked quite a bit with families and children. So can you tell us about how you came to playwriting and how practising law has influenced your writing? Yeah, it really has influenced my writing, actually. And I think that's because I worked in human rights law and because I worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service for a long time, which was just in this area, Redfern. Um, And then I also worked at the Public Interest Advocacy Centre before I moved into children's rights, where I did a lot of Indigenous children's rights work, as well as just general disadvantaged children's um, work. And also lots of street kids in the cross and various members of King's Cross was what what we served as lawyers. And I think... In a way, there was just so much despair and so many hardships and so much that was unfair that I kind of needed a way of releasing it. And so my very first play was 24 Hours in King's Cross. And basically it was paying homage to the community, the sort of disparate community that was around King's Cross and how they supported each other. But also it was about telling the stories that happen after sort of, you know, after 8 p.m. at night, what goes on in that sort of 12 hours before 8 in the morning. Um, and then what goes on for the rest of the day before it starts again. So I didn't expect it to be the success it was, that first play, but I think every playwright, their first play is a success, otherwise they would throw it away (laughs) and do something else. And I think that that first, when you have an audience that understands what you're trying to say, it's incredibly embracing and it really gives you that desire to do more and more. It sounds like you had quite a lot of material coming out of that career as a I did I I did and I think that first play I think it was something like 200 scenes per act and there were two acts and there were like 100 characters or something and I remember one of the actors saying to me and we actually got funding for it it was on at the old Fitz and it went to the Sydney Opera House but we had funding at the old Fitz and we had 10 actors and um, I remember one of the actors saying, I've never been in a play that has this many scenes and this many characters. And I thought, oh, really? Oh, have I done something unusual? <laughs> and then when we went into rehearsal, I realised I had to cut it down to sort of, you know, 40 characters. And they all had to double up and quadruple up. And, of course, I had to cut the scenes down as well. But I was quite naive when I went into it. And even though I'd been to NIDA, it just didn't occur to me that I was writing in a very unusual 
format at the time. Right. So NIDA came after the law degree, I assume. It did, yeah, yeah. In fact, I actually, I studied film and theatre at the University of New South Wales after my law degree, and I wrote a play for that as well as a film for that, but I was so excited by the playwriting that I applied for NIDA for the playwriting course there and got into that, which was a year-long course, and it was really fabulous. I met fantastic people, and I learned a lot. So Tessa, the protagonist, talks about the fact that the law kind of organically reflects or responds to, I guess, the material reality of of society. And Mm. the play is largely centred around her changing relationship with that law, going from being on on one side um, in the court to being on the other side of it, so to speak. So I'm not sure how much of her perspective directly reflects your own, but even from the beginning, she has this kind of grappling, contradictory relationship with, with the law where, you know, as a barrister, she obviously respects and reveres the law on the one hand um, as a system that's kind of fixed but flexible but she also feels constrained by it. I guess I'm interested in hearing what you think about the the role of the law in either sort of facilitating change or stymieing it or somewhere in between. Well I think the law is the is the point where you can facilitate change and I think the problem with the law is that it's it was defined by a very conservative very male very old school way of thinking and of course it adapts with communities but it doesn't catch up as quickly as it needs to and I think that often gets challenged and the great thing about the law is that you can challenge it and if you challenge it appropriately you can find a way to actually remould it so that that so that the law starts to reflect the community I still believe in the law very much so and I think what was hard for me as a defense lawyer because I was a criminal defense lawyer with young people is that I could really do a great narrative like in court I could really embody the story of what my client wanted the court to hear and give it full credence and really give it some emotional weight as well as specificity and I started to realize that I was winning all my cases even when I didn't think I should have been and I think that was my first crisis point where I thought well is the law working if I can actually win these cases where I'm not even that sure myself and of course it is working because that's how it works but it really depends on who's representing you because another person could have represented the same person and not really given them the same kind of narrative and I started to realize also that the narrative creation the rhetoric of narrative was actually a really important change vehicle and so in some ways it kind of lent on me deciding to use narrative rather than law as a vehicle for change so it in in, there's two forms of it really that you really you do learn to tell a story in law and a persuasive story and a story that actually affects someone in a manner that makes them decide that they are going to go with you on it but you also learn that the law is a tool that if you can manipulate the pieces of it that are allowed to be manipulated you can actually change the law for people that come after you it's interesting that idea of the law as a narrative because in the in this play I think we really quite brilliantly play with the or show the way that the truth of the defendant is is sort of twisted and shaped within the within the court and every you know everything is sort of picked to pieces you find the holes in the in the narrative and it's almost as if the narrative changes along along the way or something I think definitely it does and I think that's what people don't understand about the law actually is it's actually a game of rules And if you play within the rules and you know where you can stretch things and where you have to sort of abide by certain rules, you manipulate the narrative to get the best version of your client's story. And I think, in fact, in the play, 
or maybe in a previous draft, I'm not sure, <laughs> but there's a time when Tessa explains that really her job is to give the best version of her client's story and assuming that the other side do the same thing, give the best version of their client's story, the law is supposed to find the truth between the two. And the problem with that though is who's making that decision is the judge and um, often it's a white male heterosexual judge from a fairly wealthy background. Not always and that's changing for sure and there's more women on the bench. There's certainly no Aboriginal judges in New South Wales at least. In, at the Supreme Court level in, in any effect. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is there's very little diversity there. Mm. So that means that they come from a certain experience and therefore they only see it from that perspective. Mm. And the truth of the matter is no matter what we think, we all have an unconscious bias whether we like it or not. And so that's not challenged at certain levels in the law and in, in adjudication. And so I would be at different courts in the law where I would be looking at people in the local court level where it's really sort of, it's very busy and there's so much happening that you see things go past, you think, oh my God, that's so unfair. Uh, at, the, at the upper levels, it's all about the legal, the legal framework and arguing within that framework. But the truth in law is not necessarily the truth in life. It's just that what you can prove. So it's a very different paradigm and people don't understand that. And they don't understand that for a reason. It's really hard to understand <laughs> because you think the law is the place that truth is told. But a certain truth is told, a legal truth is apparently told. And um, you rely on the system and its checks and balances to make sure that's the case. But you also know that there's a story behind the story and anyone that has a disadvantaged or or they have a different language or uh, as a primary language or just a different outlook often doesn't provide their instructions in a manner that fits the system. And I think that's the case for sexual assault. It's interesting when she, Tessa, talks about it being a sort of a game of chase as well and there's almost an addictive quality. I think there is and I think that's what frightens some lawyers as well. I mean, if you're actually a litigator, which I was, there's something about being in court and being on your feet and constantly having, and you're arguing constantly and, and, and affecting the narrative five steps down the track because you're going, I have to go in this direction to make it work for me. And they've just thrown a spanner in the works and I have to manipulate that so it looks good for me as well, for my client as well. And I think it's that quick off the mark type of work. It's the changing narrative constantly and also affecting a manner that doesn't look like you've got a shock. <laughs> so you're also acting a little bit, but also you're using a different language and, um, and it gives you an adrenaline rush when you're cross-examining someone and you can feel that you're winning or you're leading them to a place where you know you're going to actually make a point that's going to be good for your client. So because that's a human thing, <laughs> You have to rely that the legal system as such has checks and balances for that type of game playing, I guess, that goes on within the court system. Mm. Um, a so, lot of lawyers aren't going to like yeah. me saying all this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my experience. I know that there were times, and I, did, I went to court every day, and there were times that I'd be quite pumped afterwards because I had done sort of a really good job. Mm. Or, and there were times that I'd be devastated because whatever I'd done hadn't worked. <laughs> so you realise that you have a personal investment in your role, in the role that you play. My last circle, then bang. I fire four questions like bullets. Bang, 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 bang. Face, shock, utter annihilation. And the look I get... Dawning, you fucking idiot. You thought you had this, but here I am.
face of it, which means if you have a prima facie case, your case can go to court. So the police obviously believed in the sexual assault matters that go to the court that there's a prima facie case, as in there's a case to be answered. So it was a play on words, really, the title, the idea that on the face of it, there's a case to be answered. But on the face of it, of Tessa, we see that it's impossible for her to ever get a foothold in with her evidence because the way the legal system set up is she's actually the one on trial. So it was really playing with the concept of prima facie as a legal concept and on the face of it as a, that on the face of it, you look like you should be able to win, but you never can. So the play premiered so for the first time in the wake of uh, Me Too, which obviously you couldn't have foreseen while you were writing it, and now it's showing again in the midst of what can only be called a political crisis for yes. um, for the coalition government around sexism and harassment, you know, with a whole series of, um, of allegations of assault against people kind of right at the top of society. So what kind of contribution do you imagine or hope that this play can make in the current crisis or circumstances? Well, you know, I, there's, there's a couple of things here. One is I did write it before the Me Too movement, and when I wrote it, I wrote it because I needed to write it and I never even imagined anyone would be able to put it on. I thought, who's going to put on a rape play? <laughs> it's just not done in Australia. In fact, there's so few female protagonists that lead a show that mostly playwrights were taught behind closed doors, don't write a female protagonist as the lead in your play. And you'll see that most, most women writers didn't for a while because they just knew they wouldn't get on. So, or it was equally, that you wouldn't have just one main female protagonist. In any event... Um, I wrote this just because I needed to. It was lucky enough to win the Griffin Award and then it was programmed. When it was programmed, the Me Too movement had caught up with it, which was exciting for me just to know Me Too existed because I wrote this in a level of frustration and anxiety. And I think as a lawyer, I believe so much in the law that this was my sticking point that I went, but when this happens, I don't believe in it. I don't think it's working well. So that's something to really worry about if I stayed in that profession. And I had many heated conversations with people who just poo-pooed the idea that perhaps it wasn't appropriate for women to be cross-examined in this case, in this particular manner at least. Um, I still believe in innocent until proven guilty, and I also believe that there has to be another way to do it. Mm. Um, but then, I, of course, you could never have predicted that for the second season we'd be in an, another wave of um, empowerment arguments about women in the workplace and women in schools and women just in general in life because what we'd all, what we've all experienced and I don't know a woman that hasn't experienced some level of almost assault or assault or harassment I just don't know one um, that hasn't or if they really reflect back on their life there's times that they felt unsafe just by being a woman and I think that we've just absolutely incorporated that as part of our lifestyle we don't know any different so it's so heartening for me i have a young daughter who's 18 i have lots of goddaughters like a, like a lot of goddaughters and i've got lots of young female friends that i know through my friends children and i just hope that their world is a really different one because it was unimaginable to me when i was you know a teenager and in my 20s that it could possibly be different i just learned to adjust to live around it and it's just exciting for me that it could change. And I think aside from just what's happening in Parliament, which is just so terrifying that it's happening at that height. I mean, we all know, <laughs> but suddenly we're actually going, we all know, but wow, it really is. And not only is it really a discussion that's happening at that level, how have we actually lived like this for so long? But I also think what's remarkable is that the school education system is suddenly going, oh, 
yeah, actually, there's a responsibility to teach people about consent. And that I've got actually another play that I'm writing, which is actually about that responsibility. Because as, as mothers, as teachers, I'm not a teacher, but, and just as community members, we have a responsibility to have conversations with young men and young women about sexuality and about how it's actually unique for people to come together and have a conversation about what they're doing or what they're activating. And it's not about learning about sex through porn or thinking that that's the only way. In fact, I had a conversation with my son that was explaining that, you know, it's actually about you, you get to discover it for yourself. You don't have to be, don't think that's the template. Of course, those conversations are tricky with teenage boys, but I think until you have them, you're actually not fulfilling, like you're not giving them a chance. So, and then therefore you're not giving young girls a chance either. Mm. So um, I think it's really important that this stuff is now spoken about. And the only way we can speak about it is to take that level of shame of someone that's experienced sexual assault. The minute we strip it of the shame factor for the woman and we actually go, actually it's happened to so many women and we never talk about it. Then in that regard, I feel like once people can talk about it without fearing that they'll be ostracized or stigmatized, then we can address the problem for what it actually is, which is a pandemic of its own manner. She was so composed throughout all her evidence, but afterwards I saw her fold in two. What if he did it? I got him off. Shit. Can't think like that. The Crown Prosecutor should have done a better job. My job is just to point out the holes in the Crown story. Because, you know, we all think we know the absolute truth of our lives. But how often have we sworn the dress we wore to the party was red and then seen a photo of a blue dress? Sworn that we left our keys here but found them there. People are fallible. Their word has to be tested. seems to me is that most of Me Too kind of happened online. It felt more like a big ideological discussion that took place online, also, um, you know, somewhat in Hollywood. And so in in a sense, it felt sort of nebulous at at a lot of points, whereas this time that anger has spilled out into the streets and, and rallies and there's quite clear demands around politicians actually stepping down, for example, and also more focus on, on their policies and the, the effect that they have on, on the lives of, um, of ordinary women. So even though every time this stuff comes to light in these rounds, it's devastating and awful, do you feel a bit more of a sense of hope this yes, time around? Yes, I do. I actually do. And I actually felt hope after Me Too because it was such a shift from when I was at university to seeing that happen and seeing those marches and seeing that the word feminist was not a dirty word. It was actually a, a word of pride mm. and it was a word of power and it was a word of going forward. And it was no longer something to be scared of being labelled. Like, not that I was ever scared of being labelled, but you knew that once you said it, there was a whole lot of stigma that came attached to it, that you were an angry person, that you were someone that was going to be difficult in some way, that you are a woman that didn't like men. And, you know, that's not what it is. In fact, I think men should so much be feminist because it actually strips them of that awful weight that society has in general of them having to be a primary provider of some sort. Mm. You think, what man wants to grow up to think, okay, I have to support whatever many offspring and my partner 
and I have to do all that on my own and pay a mortgage. And that's the sort of old school 50s style, but it's still it's still underneath so many young men's experience of what's expected of them, that in some way they have to be able to provide. And of course, provision for family is a joint enterprise and women are happy to, they're obviously very happy to be that. In fact, they're providing for their own families on their own often. But I think that, you know, as a feminist, it's actually a scope. It's actually a way of thinking about the world. It's not just about women. It's saying women's experience can teach us all something about respect, about equality, about a much more, a greater quality of life. So I know that at one point you put on a special night for female lawyers and politicians to see the play. So what was the response of the crowd that night and what kind of discussions did it spark? It was seriously one of my most amazing nights at the theatre. So there were three of us on stage. We write us very rarely on stage, but it was for the Q&A, which we often have on stage after a a night at the theatre. So it was myself, and of course it was only a cast of one, so it was Sheridan, and it was Lee Lewis who was the director. So it was three women on stage and... Bursting at the seams at the Griffin Theatre were women in every seat, sitting on the stairs, coming in after because they couldn't get to see the show, but they wanted to do the Q&A. And we had like loads of female judges, including some very iconic ones, one, one of which we've lost since then. You know, all women QCs, women lawyers, women politicians. Tanya Plebisek was in the front row, I remember. Um, policymakers, everyone that has a legal background and you're a lawyer, that was their night to come. And what was really interesting is that the conversation that they brought up was talking about how the play for them, because it was about a barrister, often they were saying, this is our workplace. This is what we experience in the workplace. And one of the really interesting things for me, which has sort of sparked other ideas, is this idea that within their workplace, having done five years of law school, college of law, you know, intern for however many years, been a reader, currently a junior barrister or a QC. They've invested up to 10 years of their lives to be a lawyer at that level and they're still getting sexually harassed or sexually, or they're realising they're being looked over for various things. But to speak out after that much of inve- that much of an investment is to really risk the whole 10 years. So it's harder almost to speak out at that level, even though we see them as such a powerful group. The truth of the matter is that at that very high level of the law, there's no system of meritocracy. Basically, it's a group of judges come together and decide who becomes QC, um, who the secret, the secret behind-the-scenes politicians and QCs and judges come together to decide who becomes a judge. So there's so many ways that you can hide um, a sexist examination of, of all the candidates because there's no accountability for that. So it's, and, and for years and years and years, and actually the legal system is the last one to change out of all of the professions, there has been a lag in having women or people of colour or black people or, you know, like anyone with any diversity and working class. Class is also a really big thing in the law. I mean, I didn't come from the same background as all my peers. And it's a much harder, harder world to negotiate when you don't know lawyers growing up and you don't have that background growing up and you realise that a lot of people... Not only do they know lawyers, they're in their families. <laughs> so they actually have an access point that you don't have. So I think that without that, so much of it's behind closed doors that you never know whether it's your gender or whether you weren't good enough <laughs> because no one's accountable to that. Mm. So I could see so many women getting looked over for roles that they, or for promotions or for going up the scale that they should have had. And all of these women have actually got there that were at this, at this um, Q&A. And they were basically saying, we've got there in spite of all of that, 
to actually put our hand up now and say this is happening on my floor with a major QC is to watch ourselves tumble because the word will go out that we're not easy to work with. Mm. And everyone understands that. I mean, even if you work at a sandwich bar and someone says, oh, they spoke out about that, they're difficult, you know that that's actually what's going on behind closed doors. But you, you some because if you're political or ideological, you do it anyway. But, you know, there's always a risk in doing that. And I'm hoping that this movement will say that calling it out is actually what is supposed to happen and men should be calling it out as well rather than, you know, like the sort of... I always remember Tony Abbott and his wink you know, about someone he was talking about online while he was on the radio Mm. about a a woman's experience of something. And you think that it's that winking, but when no one can see you, or he thought no one could see you because he was on radio. You go, that's the stuff that's toxic for women because it actually undermines them against the club of men and they don't even know it's happening. Yeah, I guess in recent months we've heard all these stories about like, women in Parliament facing this this harassment week in, week out, and it also does make you wonder, like, if this is what these women who are supposedly, Absolutely. you know, in occupying the halls of power, what does that what does that mean for women who aren't you know, anywhere near the halls of power? And you put it's, someone who's living on the breadline, working as a cleaner, cash in hand, or whatever, and you start to see that the power diminishes at every point in that in that scale, but also that your capacity to have a voice is really challenged. This is me, Tessa Ensler, without my barrister robe, no wig. This is what it feels like. Same court, no armour. This is me sitting in a small, windowless room, white table, black chair, waiting. I've been waiting for 763 days. And now... Today is the day. Five years at law school, 11 years of practice, I have always believed. Now I need to know that I was not mistaken. That I can still believe in you, can trust, can still hold on to you. Believe you'll show me that before the law there is justice. But I'm here and you look so different from this end. about sexism in schools with the former private high school student Chanel Contos's petition that went viral about the basically endemic rates of assaults, particularly by boys from, from some of the most elite private schools in Sydney. And so are there questions that are raised in the play that you think could be useful starting points for discussion within or about schools? There's a few things I have to say about this. One is because I worked as a young people's lawyer, which was up to 25, I would take six sexual assault statements a week when I was a lawyer. And they were harrowing. They were really harrowing. Some of them were like representing long-term childhood abuse and others were they'd been out for a night and they wanted to make a statement and they weren't sure they wanted to go to the police yet, but they wanted to make a statement to a lawyer. And, you know, they were some of the most devastating moments in my life, hearing some of these assaults and seeing a young person who hadn't told anyone yet, like break down before me and explain what had happened. And I think that all of those stories are behind the writing of this play because I can see why they didn't take them to the police. I, under, I mean, not that I would ever advise them not to, but I can see they were so fragile after the experience and they were just so unsure of what the police would do or whether it would actually be prosecuted or whether, and if it was, you know, their name would be out there and everyone would know and what would that mean in terms of stigma and then they'd lose anyway and everyone would think they were a liar. And so I also think that this play talks about consent in a really specific way. Because even my son the other day said, yeah, no, no, I know no means no. And I said, yeah, no means no. 
But sometimes nothing also means no. And sometimes, yeah, okay, also means no. It's actually a real, like there's times where you actually have to be really, I think the idea of the enthusiastic yes is a really is a really interesting model. But I also think that, that the idea of drinking culture, and particularly in Australia, but all around the world with young teens and with just young people or people generally, I mean, people my age, your age, whatever, um, there's blurry lines. And I think you have to, I think education about this is really important. It's so important because it's actually a really delicate social skill to actually engage with someone on a level where you're potentially causing harm if you're not actually, if you're not aware of what you're doing. I mean, you wouldn't go up to an old person in a nursing home and punch them in the face and then say, oh, well, they didn't say don't do it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, I'm taking it to a crazy extreme, but we have to find out where that point in the middle is that you go, this is, it's because it's, we all know that sexual assault, when it's like a stranger kind of coming upon someone and, you know, but even then they will plead consent. So, you know, but when it's a partner or it's a potential partner or even just a like a one night stand or a lover, the fact that you've engaged in part way of that relationship and then it's got out of hand means women are very anxious about where the point was where everything went wrong or where, or where they started saying no and they weren't heard. And I think often young men are sort to, thought to believe that um, that really women want it when they say no or when they change their mind. It's just about encouraging them further. And I think if you look at a lot of the absolute explosion of online porn, and I'm not an anti-porn person at all, but I would say that the template for young people's sexuality when they haven't had any experience is porn and the, the, and the, and the play with consent there where it's never really in the woman's interest. Mm. So I think that it's about actually interrogating the porn they're looking at and not being scared to do that. If it's so available, we need to have that conversation. And they need to have it at schools and they need to have it particularly in boys' schools where, you know, it becomes quite clubby to sort of one-up each other in terms of what they're all doing. Mm. And they don't have that day-to-day relationship with, with young women. And they need – and everyone's scared to talk about sex. Why are we so scared to talk about sex? It's crazy. We all do it, or most of us do it. Yeah. Why are we scared to speak about it? It's – I don't I, I actually don't understand that. You know, to the fact that it's still happening now, that the conversations about sex are not actually talking about what matters. And I think, you know, religion's tied up in this as well. And I think that's problematic as well. I think mm. it's difficult. The fact that people shun talking about something intimate because there's religious rules around it mean that they're not protecting women and they're not protecting young men from actually doing something that can cost them their whole lives. Yeah. as well so let's you know it's about both i mean women are the injured party but often men will end up in a situation where they they might adequately plead that having watched so much porn and spoken to the people they spoke about they just assumed that was the right way forward mm. i guess school is one place where you can have discussions that can be an antidote to the way that you see women and girls being treated in the, in the rest of the world and i guess this is that this is one of the things about the situation at the moment is that we're seeing is people who are supposed to be leaders in, in our society and that's that's They're the kind of example the is being, that, that's being set and so it has a, and you know, a trickle you th- down effect. And if you think about how often women are sexually assaulted and how often women are um, violently you know hurt at home then so many of these boys at school and young women at school see that in their lives at home. I mean it's not you don't have to be a bra- you don't have to be brilliant to recognize if the numbers are that high that they're experiencing it behind closed doors and it needs to be counted. The system feels faulty and mixed up. The legal system feels broken. Look to your left, look to your right. I'm broken too, but I'm still here.
and I will not be silenced. To get a copy of Prime Facey, head over to our website at currency.com.au. Thank you to Sarah Easterman for reading the excerpts from the play for this episode. To listen to other episodes of Non in Print, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 